Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Jim Garrity is off today. Really happy to have Emily Jashinsky back with us. She is the host of the Federalist Hour podcast. She's cultural editor at the Federalist. She directs the National Journalism Center with uh, Young Americans for Freedom. She's with the Independent Women's Forum. And somehow <laughs> she still has time to do this. Uh, so, Emily, thank you for doing that. And thanks, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, So before we get into our uh, three official martinis today, just want to get your reaction real quickly because uh, all of a sudden it's exploded, not just in Pride Month where it seems like there's a a drag show controversy with kids with a front row seat just about every day. But this, of course, has been an ongoing debate for sure since the uh, the legislation debate in Florida, which the left described as the don't say gay bill, which is not in there at all. It just means that you shouldn't be, uh, you know, forging a curriculum for super young kids uh, on gender identity issues and so forth. And, and so that led to this whole uh, debate over, you know, the, the rights bigots and the left's groomers and, and all this. But now you got Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel talking to a civil rights organization in Lansing yesterday, uh, saying she wants a drag queen in every school. The Detroit News says she's joking, but I've heard the audio. And while, you know, she it's hard to tell whether she's serious or not here. I think she's certainly sympathetic to the idea because she also said drag queens make everything better. Drag queens are fun. So, um, Emily, it's hard to find a better soundbite from the left than a drag queen for every school to make the point that the left is way out of bounds here when it comes to what our kids should be learning. Right. No, it reminds me of that quote. I think this was during the 2015 or the 2016 primary um, of a taco truck on every corner. Do you remember that? <laughs> I think someone uh, on the right actually made it sound like a threat that there would be a taco truck on every corner under Hillary Clinton, and everybody's like, "That sounds great." Um, <laughs> although I think the the sentiment is going to be reversed here um, because she can't really run from the directional sentiment of her comment. You know, that's the what she's saying is that. Drag queens and children are fundamentally a, a perfectly acceptable combination, and I don't think uh, you know they're going to want to run on that for sure. And I don't think it's a particularly defensible position, especially especially when we've peeled back the curtain um, and some people have posted videos and talked about their experiences. Um, you know what those what those shows that are allegedly child friendly look like. Um, not always what most people would describe as child friendly. So if they want to run on this, good luck to them. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Uh, it's it's fascinating, though. This reminds me a little bit of the uh, defund the police debate where some folks who weren't quite as radical as the uh, Ilhan Omars of the world are saying, we don't really mean defund. And then the AOCs and the Omars come in. No, no, we really do. Defund and, oh, by the way, dismantle. And so you've got the left saying, oh, come on, this, this is no big deal. You know, nobody's talking about a drag queen in every school. And here comes Dana Nessel. <laughs> yeah, actually, we do want that. <laughs> No, it's exactly like that. And it's a playbook that, it, not necessarily a playbook, but it's a pattern that you can follow on just about every cultural issue. The left is saying two things at once. Uh, in the same breath, they're saying, this is not widespread or mainstream. And then they're saying, if you don't accept this, you're a bigot. <laughs> right. 
not super consistent. All right, Emily, let's get on to our actual uh, martinis now. We don't have any good ones today. We got lots of lousy ones. Uh, and perhaps the worst of all is this statement from this group called Jane's Revenge. If you haven't heard of them before, they haven't got a lot of attention. Although if they're on the other side of the abortion debate, I guarantee you they'd be a household name. Uh, but they are responsible, or at least claiming responsibility, for a lengthy series of violent attacks on pregnancy centers all across the country in the weeks since the uh, leaked opinion on the Dobbs case that uh, seems to be uh, preparing to overturn Roe v. Wade. We've had uh, attacks in Wisconsin, Colorado, Massachusetts, Washington, Iowa, Washington again, Washington, D.C., Asheville, North Carolina, Buffalo, New York recently, Hollywood, Florida, Vancouver, Washington, Frederick, Massachusetts, Denton, Texas, Gresham, Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, and Portland, Oregon, among others. And so they now say, this group, we were unsurprised to see 30 days come and 30 days pass with no signs of consilience or even bare minimum self-reflection from you who impersonate healthcare providers in order to harm the vulnerable. They say your 30 days expired yesterday. We offered an honorable way out. You could have walked away. Now the leash is off and we will make it as hard as possible for your campaign of oppression to continue. And that oppression, of course, is helping women who want to have their babies have their babies. We have demonstrated in the past month how easy and fun it is to attack. We are versatile. We are mercurial. And we answer to no one but ourselves. And they're basically saying nobody's safe if you're on the pro-life side of this issue. I have not seen anyone yet on the left condemn this, uh, Emily. So I, I don't know whether the FBI or anybody else is going to take this seriously, but I'm not holding my breath for them either. Yeah, there's two parts of that. One, would they be taking it seriously if it were going in the other direction? Absolutely, yes. Cable news would be in a frenzy about the widespread pattern of violence towards, uh, you know, pro-abortion people. But secondly, um, is it extremely newsworthy and concerning? Absolutely, yes, because when you were reading that list, it's amazing how this is touching in this group itself, um, which I suspect is working with like local Antifa leaders and chapters, because here in D.C., not far from uh, where I am, what they did, um, it, it looked Antifa-y. Um, I'll, I'll say that. In, mm -hmm. It seems that they uh, are really intent on putting this, making this happen in every corner of the United States. And it's very telling that they're attacking pregnancy centers. Um, I think there will be attacks on masses and uh, churches. I think we're only seeing the beginning of this as it's gonna get, and it's gonna get worse. But pregnancy centers, as you say, are informational. They're for people to get resources and to get information um, if they're considering an abortion, if they're considering carrying their baby to term, if they're considering any of these options, pregnancy centers are generally pro-life. They tell them what some of the negative consequences might be um, of an abortion, which we know that there are mental health consequences. We know that there are physical health consequences. And it's just a another side of the story that you don't get if you walk into a Planned Parenthood. So again, like the, like the drag queens in every school comment, this is a disaster electorally, politically for Democrats to be attacking pregnancy centers um, and for the pro-abortion side in general. Uh, but it's also really scary because it's it's genuinely a pattern and it, it's actually very widespread around the country. How hard is this for Democrats? You'd think they would be the first ones 
if they actually think this is you know wrong which you should it's violent destructive behavior people could end up losing their lives from this uh or the same thing with the people protesting in front of the justices houses it would be so easy for them to distance themselves and you'd think politically they would want to by saying this is beyond the pale uh we disagree with the ruling that seems to come down but we can't have this this is we want no part of this uh we condemn it in the strongest terms you'd think there'd be statement after statement but all i'm hearing are crickets yeah, I genuinely have no genuinely have no idea how to explain it, although I do think they are the, the violence in and of itself, I think, shows you why they're particularly terrified of their base. Um, and the irony is that in being so scared of the base that they won't condemn it uh, in any strong terms whatsoever, it's that they're allowing it to metastasize. They're enabling it and empowering it to grow. So it's it's kind of an irony, like the more scared they are, the more powerful that uh, this and I shouldn't say the Democratic Party space, but like the fringe act activist base. Um, they, they don't want to pick fights. It seems like it would be really easy, but they are really terrified. Um, and I think, you know, 2020 explained why, the summer of 2020 explained why um, picking these fights does not always end well for elected Democrats. So their cost-benefit analysis is that, you know, we'll let the right-wing press go crazy over this. We know the mainstream legacy media isn't going to go crazy over it, and we'll just lay low, um, and we won't have to pick the fight, and it'll be better that way. That's my best guess at the calculus. No, I think you're, I think you're right. As you were saying that, I'm like, they'll just pretend it's not happening because if the mainstream media is not talking about it, they can claim that they weren't even aware of it. And then if it you know blows up to the point, literally, unfortunately, where they can't ignore it anymore, they'll act like they had no idea. And uh, then they'll condemn it uh, after the fact. But it's just nuts. But uh, let's talk about something happy. We don't have any actual good news today, but we do have two great sponsors. Uh, first of all, the X chair. Many of us spend more time every day in our office chair than in our cars or our beds. And that's why it is so important to invest in the right chair to spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort to get the most productivity out of your day. As you know, Jim Garrity is the one who has gotten to try out the X chair. Uh, and so it's his testimonial. And here it is. X chair has made my time at my desk not only more productive, it's honestly my favorite place to sit for any reason. Not only does X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL offer the ultimate customized support, but my X chair can give me a massage or heat up or cool down. And now, thanks to the X chair's new FS360 armrests, I can adjust my armrests to the perfect position. All of these unique X-Chair features help the hours at my desk fly by in complete comfort. That's why I love my X-Chair. Go to xchairmartini.com now. That's the letter X, chair, M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com. Or call 1-844-4X-Chair for $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 per month. xchairmartini.com. All right, Emily, on to our next terrible martini. And we've got three of them today, although I think the last one's probably more accurately described as a crazy. But uh, Jim and I tried to let people know before the Pennsylvania Senate primary that going with Dr. Oz was not a good idea for a number of reasons. Number one, he's not a conservative. Number two, he doesn't live in Pennsylvania. And number three, people don't like him. So even if he is a better option ultimately than the Democratic nominee, he's probably not going to win. And the first fresh batch of polling numbers about the general election in the Senate race sadly are proving us right here. This is from Suffolk University. Uh, and the overall number doesn't look that terrible. But once you get into the uh, the breakdowns and some of the demographics, 
it's horrific for Dr. Oz. The overall number is John Fetterman, uh, the Democratic nominee, who very nearly died from a stroke just before the primary, uh, leads Dr. Oz 46 to 37. Here's where the news gets even worse for Dr. Oz. Among white voters, Fetterman's ahead, 43 to 42. When it comes to favorables, Fetterman, 45% favorable, 27% unfavorable. Dr. Oz, meanwhile, 28% favorable, 50% unfavorable. Uh, it's not done yet. It's getting even worse. Uh, he's actually worse than Biden among independents. Biden is 25 points underwater with independents in Pennsylvania, 60 to 35. Dr. Oz is 40 points underwater, 57 to 17. Emily, the independents are basically begging for candidates they can vote for to rebuke Joe Biden. And if you can only find 17% to support a guy that everybody pretty much has an opinion about already, you're not in good shape. Well, what's really frustrating about this is the uh, MAGA, well, I should say maybe the, the people who were with Trump on the question of endorsing Oz, because it kind of, that race did sort of split the MAGA base. Um, but the people who were insisting it had to be Dr. Oz, it had to be Dr. Oz, were doing so explicitly with this argument that he was more electable. That was their entire pitch, was Dr. Oz might not be perfect, but he's more electable. And I don't think that argument ever really carried water. I you know, people, if you're coming from Donald Trump's position and you see this sort of pop cultural icon, you can understand it. Uh, you can understand how the logic goes behind it. But at the same time, the guy is basically a carpetbagger. He has all kinds of political problems from his involvement with China to his involvement with celebrities. And you just can go on down the line with him. Uh, so these numbers aren't surprising at all. And I think John Fetterman's actually a good candidate. He's going to struggle with the um, economy, you know, it's going to be front in mind, front of mind for people. He's tried to be sort of deft with energy issues as a pretty far left progressive in an energy producing state like Pennsylvania. Um, but whether he can pull that off in the general is a, another question entirely. Um, it's just Dr. Oz, the argument that he was the more electable candidate. I, I don't I mean, it did, I don't even think it flew with Pennsylvania Republicans who mostly voted for the two other people in the race. So it's the they're going to be bleeding from this primary, I think, pretty intensely uh, as it gets into the general. Yeah, if you look at the overall number, it shows you how good the political environment is for Republicans because Oz's favorables are at 28, yet 37 percent say they're going to vote for him. So nine percent of the people who don't like him are still going to do it just based on the, the condition <laughs> of the country right now. So some people look at this and say, oh, it's single digits. He's still got a chance. He's, you know, he's within striking distance. But for a guy with universal name recognition, um, that's that's going to be pretty tough to overcome. And at this point, you have to say, OK, well, the Democrats are at 51. Where can we make up ground? And the biggest opportunities seem to be Nevada, Georgia and Arizona. And uh, depending on how, you know, the news cycles go in those states and we'll see what's happening with Herschel Walker right now and, and finding out about children that uh, he hadn't previously admitted. Uh, those might not be the easiest ones either, but we'll see. The political climate is going to do a lot of heavy lifting for Republicans, but it's going to need to do a a lot to get them over the finish line in some of these states, I think. No, absolutely. It's such a friendly climate, but it's when you put up candidates like 
Dr. Oz and put a lot of money behind them and try to force this argument that they are electable um, on the public when people are, I think, rightfully skeptical. It's not going to be particularly helpful for Republicans um, to just go with the the hand-picked candidates uh, because they're going... Like, Herschel Walker is actually another really good example of a Dr. Oz-type figure, um, and they end up having problems that might seem like nothing uh, to national political operators, but won't fly on a local level in the state. So it's going to be, obviously, I think it's going to be a very good year uh, for Republicans in November, but there's so much room to mess that up in certain key states. Um, and, and Fetterman, I think, is a pretty good candidate. I think Democrats will you know, probably find good candidates in certain places because they are so desperate. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I'm openly worried about the Senate. Uh, I'm quietly confident about the House, uh, but a lot still has to go right there. You have to nominate electable candidates uh, first and foremost. Uh, and I, I don't think we're seeing that on the Republican side in some of these states, especially Pennsylvania. But uh, Missouri is another one I'm worried about. Uh, oh, Eric Greitens yes. has you know more baggage than Delta Airlines on, a, on an average day. And he's still right at neck and neck there in winning that primary. And uh, that's an easily winnable race for Republicans if either of the two very good, very conservative candidates who are who are competitive with him uh, can get the nomination. That's Hartzler and Schmidt. But if it's Eric Reitens, I can I can see people just holding their nose and, 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 and rejecting him. So Republicans don't blow it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and national Republicans, like, and I don't mean like the RNC types here in Washington, but um, in the sort of Trump orbit, let's see what they do with Greitens, because it's a really, it's like Herschel Walker, you know, there are red flags, so to speak, with these candidates, um, but it it's, gets into the internecine debate on the Republican side about whether fighters who are just, you know, they fight above everything, they may be imperfect, but they fight, and they're going to fight on all of these issues are the uh, priority and are the superior option. And in the case of somebody like Greitens, I would really hope that, uh, you know, folks in, in that orbit don't come down on his side. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There are two perfectly acceptable conservative options there. Don't make that mistake. We're also brought to you in part today by NetChoice. As Americans, innovation has always been what makes us different. America's tech industry outpaces the world, and we have the most innovative companies uh, that power our economy and way of life. And it's that free market innovation that makes us number one. But some in Washington want to put big government in charge of America's top innovators, attacking our own in the name of competition, while true competitors like Europe and China close the gap. NetChoice believes congressional conservatives must stand for American innovation, not big government, by rejecting progressive antitrust proposals. They specifically encourage you to tell your senator to oppose Senator Amy Klobuchar's Senate Resolution 2992. So learn more about the fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, on to our crazy martini now, Emily. And the Biden administration can't seem to get a consistent message at all on the economy. It's, some days they're saying, hey, it's actually great. I don't know why you can't see this, uh, but uh, our economic policies are working great. Other times, uh, you listen to these cabinet secretaries, there's nothing more we can do. We're just going to have to suffer through these record high gas prices and inflation and all these other things. Uh, other days, we're blaming Vladimir Putin for it. And other days, well, as soon as we can do this, that, or the other thing, everything's going to be fine. So they have no consistent message because they have no answers for this. But the latest one, and usually we see this with respect to Democrats calling for tax increases, Emily, uh, it's time 
for people to be patriotic. And by patriotic, it means giving more of your money to the government, usually when it comes to tax policy. But yesterday at the press podium, Press Secretary uh, Karina Jean-Pierre telling oil companies, you need to be patriots. And by being patriots, you need to basically give up profits. We are we are calling on them to do the right thing, to be patriots here uh, and not to use the war uh, as an excuse or as a as a reason uh, to not put to not put out a production, not to not do the capacity that is needed out there uh, so that the prices can so that the prices can come down. Emily, it's uh, tired excuse making. Uh, do you think at this point, since this is about their 12th crack at a message on inflation, that this one's going to do any better for them? No, absolutely not. I think that's why they are just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks, because they know their odds of anything sticking are so small, even with the entire legacy media in their corner. None of this is going to make Americans feel better about the administration's policies um, contributing to the insane prices that they're facing, not just at the pump, but in other places. They don't have a good defense. Um, and so I think that explains the the just never-ending stream of abject nonsense uh, coming out of them because they know that they really don't have a leg to stand on uh, when it comes to defending what's going on right now. One of the things I, I keep hearing, though, even though Republicans control absolutely nothing in Washington, is, well, what's the Republican plan for this? And I think the Republican plan should be pretty obvious, and that is expanding domestic energy production because what the left also fails to understand probably intentionally, is that uh, investing and, and, and the long-range plans of oil companies are going to be based on what they think is going to happen. If they think that it's going to be a robust opportunity to explore and produce, which is not cheap, they're going to do it. If they keep hearing from Secretary Granholm and everybody else in the Biden administration, well, you guys need to pump a lot right now, and then we're going to cripple your industry to go green. Not really sure where the incentive is right there. Yeah, no, it, <laughs> I'm with you on that. The The Republican response is actually to drill. And that's I, there's there's plenty that can be done domestically right now to bring prices down. Biden's response is to go to Saudi Arabia. Um, it, it's, it's just not, it's not going to pass the smell test with voters because there are options, um, but there are options that, and I think the Saudi Arabia point is an instructive one because that is how desperate Democrats are not to rile up the sort of far left progressive wing of the party right now, um, that they will, in, instead of pursuing domestic energy options, they will literally go to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> like that is, that instead of offending the climate activists, they're going to go to Saudi Arabia. That's how like desperate they are in this case, not to pick a fight. Yeah. And they're kind of flirting with Venezuela too. So, you know, all the best actors uh, coming together on this one. So, <laughs> Unbe Only the best. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Emily, uh, not a lot of fun stories today, but a lot of fun talking about them with you. So thanks for your time, and we'll talk to you down the road. Thank you. Emily Jashinsky, she is the culture editor at The Federalist and host of The Federalist Radio Hour. She also hosts Rising Fridays for The Hill, uh, and she's director of the National Journalism Center, and she is a senior fellow with the Independent Women's Forum. Uh, I am Greg Columbus of Radio America. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us. Thank you for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow all of us on Twitter. Emily is at Emily Jashinsky. Jim is at Jim Garrity. And I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday and join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.
Human trafficking is a massive problem with young kids being exploited sexually and through forced labor, and it's happening right where you live. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, I'll bring you the latest horrifying statistics on trafficking and share a story on how easily it can happen. I'll also take on the left-wing media for thoroughly ignoring the attempted murder of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Join me. Follow The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.